Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Just got a letter from uh, Sam, who uh, wrote to me saying that for the last few weeks on this show, he feels that I've been over-focusing on the F of faith. And he says, could you please go back to some of the other Fs? And uh, Sam, I wrote back to and said that, yes, indeed, and that uh, this show that you are now listening to is going to be much more about family. However, the reality remains that if you have read carefully the ebook that you can download for free from my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, then you would have a clearer understanding of how family and finances and fitness and friendships all do tie into faith as well. In fact, all five Fs are interlinked with one another. I actually recommended that you uh, went through the exercise of drawing a circle and then marking five equidistant spots on the circle. And, uh, of course, it goes without saying that they'll be 72 degrees apart. And uh, then on each one of those five places, write down one of the five Fs and then draw straight lines connecting each one to the other. And you'll, you'll see the diagram that will result uh, will be a, a very effective um, schematic, really, of how all the five S are connected with one another. But, uh, but still, let's go on, shall we, to today's topic already. And today's topic is stimulated because of a letter I received. And uh, I did answer because the person who wrote, Jennifer, is a member of the Happy Warriors community. Uh, I responded to her and asked her if it was okay if I did the main discussion that her letter stimulates on the air on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show that you're currently listening to. And Jennifer said yes. Um, And here is her letter. Um, It really resonated with me. I I totally got it. And uh, I was very pleased because it launched a topic that I feel really does need a little bit of thinking. It's not going to be for each and every one of you. But I dare say that each and every one of you knows somebody for whom this is very important information. Here's her letter. Dear Rabbi, I have followed the advice of your books on money, and my financial life was transformed by your ideas. Now I'm back to you for another of the five Fs. I have dated more than my fair share of selfish, impulsive jerks. But I'm dating a guy right now, and I just don't know 
dot, 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 dot. By the way, uh, Jennifer is 27. And now her letter continues. My parents think he is a really nice guy. And he is. But there is something inside me causing major doubts. I've listened to your podcast show for long enough that I know I cannot trust my feelings. So some nights I lie awake worrying that I am about to end a relationship with one of the most easy to get along with guys I've ever met. A guy who could well become the kind of husband who would one day help me with chores and get up in the night with a crying baby. Some of my friends think I'm crazy to consider walking away. He's really easy to get along with. But Rabbi, I have to tell you that with every nice thing he does, I'm finding him less and less attractive. Is there something wrong with me? Am I going to wreck my life by letting this one go and finding a really bad boy to replace him? How can I explain that I'm ending a relationship because the guy is too nice and too agreeable? It sounds mad. He's soft-spoken and super easygoing, not caring where we go or what we do. It's so hard to decide. He's kind and sometimes makes me laugh and has good val- he has good values. So I feel like a spoiled brat whenever I start planning to end it. What's wrong with me not wanting to be with a guy because he's too nice? And uh, it's signed, Jennifer. So, um, Jennifer, 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 I am so sorry for the predicament in which you find yourself. Uh, Your instincts and concerns are absolutely right and very valid. Is your hesitation really related to his niceness? Or is it more about a, an absence of initiative and drive and ambition? You see, you have a need, as do most women, to feel safe and to feel protected in the presence of a man. And there's a part of you that's wondering whether or not he is able to handle the world. Look, um, there is such a thing called masculine and feminine. There's such a thing as man and woman. There is not such a thing as transgender. There just isn't. And all of us are either man or woman. And men typically have more masculine energy and less feminine energy. And most women, for the most part, have more feminine energy and less masculine energy. But yes, of course, there are women who do have a great deal of masculine energy. And there are also men who have a lot of feminine energy. And, um, and so what that means is that most women desire a man who radiates masculinity and makes them feel safe and makes them feel protected, which is part of what masculinity is with respect to femininity. Uh, most men 
want a woman who will nurture and, let me say, be a good receiver. And what I mean by that is that the actual physical and biological realities of gender reflect a great deal of truth on the spiritual realities of gender as well. And uh, that means that men in general are projectors. Men put out and women receive. And if you think about that, it is applicable on a sociological and on a, an emotional level, not just on a biological and physical level. And so um, masculine energy means active, ambitious, initiating, right? Being the driver. And, uh, and feminine energy, much less so. And that, I think, should be reasonably clear. What is less clear, of course, is that these are realities, that these are what masculinity is and what femininity is. There are many men who are less masculine and tend to be more feminine, and there are women the other way around, just as I said earlier. <clears throat> uh, but in general, the, uh, the, the masculine man is what women like. And what you're describing here is a man, who, it's not his niceness that is bothering you. It's that you are sensing uh, too little drive, too little initiative, too little ambition. Uh, and you, you gave that away when, when you said that he was fine going anywhere or doing anything. Um, and I, I suspect that you would agree if I said that most times it turns out that you are the one who decide what you're going to be doing as a couple, where you're going or, or, or whatever it is that you're going to be doing. That is exactly part of what we're discussing. No, it's not that you're objecting to his being nice. What you really would like is a strong man who is also capable of being nice and who radiates a gentleness where necessary. Women find the picture of a strong, masculine-looking man tenderly cradling a baby to be almost irresistible. It's a very appealing picture because it is, in essence, an ideal. But it's not that easily attainable because the default condition for men is one or the other. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, handled a motorcycle resting on its rest and the front wheel is off the ground and if it's unlocked, you can turn the handlebars. And one of the things you discover is that the handlebars uh, tend to pull towards either full left lock or full right lock. But holding the wheel in the middle, the straight ahead position, is a little bit harder. Now, fortunately, when you're actually riding, that doesn't manifest itself in the same way. 
But it's always struck me from my motorcycle enthusiasm as a good metaphor for the tendency towards one extreme or the other. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that the default condition for boys growing up without acculturation, without a mother and a father parenting them, the natural condition for boys growing up is fully one way or fully the other. What are the two directions? I think of them as thug or wimp. A boy is likely to either grow up very unmasculine, very feminine, very unassertive, um, very wimpy, for lack of a better term, and alternatively, he is likely to grow up in a very uh, brutal and thuggish way. And you only have to look around our society to, in fact, see that this is one of the dilemmas facing women today who wish to uh, put their faith in one man alongside of whom to walk through life. And, uh, and they look around, and what they see are wimps or thugs. Neither one is a really good choice. And what Jennifer has, Jennifer, who wrote the letter with which I started today's show, what she has there is a wimp. You know, God bless him, and uh, I wish him well, but he really needs to listen to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, and he needs to listen to many of these shows, and he needs to read some of the books in which we discuss this stuff, because he really does need to make a huge change in who he is. But first of all, why are there so many wimps? As to why there are so many thugs, that is an easier one to explain. And the answer to that is because there is a very large number of men today who, are, who grow up, who come of age without a father. And what they discover is that the world in which they find themselves is a rough world, and the only way to manifest their masculinity is by thuggishness. Because for a man to not feel like a man is incredibly painful, more painful than any woman can actually appreciate. But what about the wimpy men? How, how do they manage? Surely they recognize that they lack masculinity. The answer is that, yes, they, they do, but they interpret it as being a good person. They see themselves as being less pushy and less likely to share the undesirable masculine traits. Uh, they are better at getting on with people. Well, yes, that is absolutely true. And most women are far better at getting on with people than most men, because being um, easy to get on with is a feminine characteristic. With men, to be that way means that you are concealing and suppressing your own feelings. But why are there so many wimps? What is going on in the society? Well, let me give you a little bit of a theory on this. Now, 
part of it is it doesn't need a theory part of it is that uh, so many men are raised without fathers that they become focused on the on their early years on pleasing mum or grandma or whoever are the women in their lives but when there's not a man in their life yes they do become that way and sometimes because this problem has been going on already for more than 50 years uh, it's very possible that their fathers were wimps and that that's how they grew up so this is this is a widely uh, spread problem and uh, again i'm not i'm not you know i don't mean to be using this term derogatorily because i know that you know i i wish happy i wish no happy warriors were wimps but it's unavoidable i know that without question some of the men listening to this show are going to look at themselves and say oh no he's describing me and and so i'm certainly not saying that uh, a wimp is a, a bad person or an evil person i'm not saying anything like that i'm saying a wimp i don't mean that word derogatorily i i just don't have a better word but what I mean is that it is a man who is not fulfilling anywhere close to all his potential. Because for a man to achieve all his potential, he needs to be masculine. And the good news is this is repairable. It really is. But the first step, obviously, is to recognize that uh, you are a man who is a little bit too feminine, not enough masculine in you. Totally changeable. This is not a case of hormone therapy, testosterone injection. No, nothing like that at all. Uh, this is a, in reality, it's a spiritual condition. And, uh, and the women in your lives or the women who are to be in your lives uh, will appreciate you fixing it because the fact is that it is frustrating for most women to live with a feminine man. And because nature abhors a vacuum, and that means that uh, not only in the world of physics, where if you create a vacuum, uh, and <laughs> do you know uh, there, are, um, there are wine corks, cork pullers, which are like hypodermic syringes. You push a needle through the cork, and then you uh, pressure the piston a few times with your thumb. And what that does is compress air into the wine bottle, which gradually forces the cork up and out of the bottle. It's very elegant, actually. Uh, I do not know whether we know files. Um, that means people who really know a lot about wines. Uh, and that is not me, I'm afraid. But I don't know what wienophiles think of such a, uh, a cork puller or a cork, not really a cork screw. But uh, what I do know is that every now and then somebody tries one of those, not on a wine bottle, but on some liqueur bottle that's been bottled in a square-shaped bottle instead of a round bottle, a bottle with a square cross-section. And after a few presses of the plunger, the bottle smashes. It just bursts out and explodes because a round bottle, uh, on the, the basis of the engineering qualities of an eggshell, a round bottle is much stronger than a bottle with four corners and four sides. And uh, the reverse is true as well. If you suck a vacuum, if you suck all the air out of a bottle, 
Uh, if it's a round bottle, you'll be able to get quite a good vacuum there. But if you try to do it with a square bottle, the outside air pressure, once you've pulled out a lot of the air from inside the square-shaped bottle, the outside air pressure pushes on the square sides and uh, quite easily smashes them because nature does not like a vacuum. And so the same is true also in terms of a power vacuum. It's true in international affairs. And uh, it's true also in domestic affairs. And that is that there needs to be somebody in the relationship who is driving it. Now, this is not true in a business partnership, but it is true in a marriage. And uh, again, I do believe this is one of the reasons that the good Lord created us with a man physically bigger than the woman not because he needs to use or should use his strength um, in a physical way, but simply that the size of him suggests, hey, I'm in charge. I will take responsibility. Now, what do I mean? I, I just want to clarify, right? I'm not talking in any tyrannical sense, God forbid, at all. But I'm talking about if, you know, here you are, you, you're driving down the road with your husband. It's late at night, and all of a sudden, there is a, uh, a loud bang, and the car uh, jerks, and your husband is behind the wheel, and he immediately puts his foot on the brake and guides the car to the side of the road, and, uh, and then when he, he's no longer focused single-mindedly on bringing the car safely to a standstill, uh, he says to you, we've just had a front-wheel blowout. And he knows that, right? He didn't say, I wonder what that was. What happened? Because he knows that when the steering wheel pulls to the side after a big bang and the car doesn't handle properly, one of the front tires blew out. That's what happened. A man knows these things. Now, he could say, you know, relax, honey, sit down. I'm, I need to get out and get the jack. I'm going to have to change the wheel. That may be what he says. Or maybe he picks up his phone and says, uh, uh, I've got uh, AAA on speed dial, and I'm sure I'll have him here in a few minutes. And he calls him up, and one way or another, he takes charge and solves the problem. That's what most women want in a husband. And a blown front tire is just a metaphor for life in general. That's what it is. You don't want to be married to a guy who says, I wonder what that was. What are we going to do now? <laughs> that's not what you want and it's not what your daughter wants there is an excitement in masculine feminine tension and it's it's something that um, blessed people have discovered uh, if if you are a, uh, a masculine man and you're married to a feminine woman you probably have bald spots in the carpet next to your bed from putting your knees there in gratitude every single night and uh, thanking the Lord for giving you such a wonderful spouse. And if, if you're a woman and you're married to a man with whom, from whom you feel masculine tension and masculine energy emanating, then, then that's wonderful for you as well. It is a good thing. Uh, the, the creativity possible in a male-female relationship is intensified and augmented when there is a, a difference, when, when, the, when one is masculine and one is feminine, there is a power that does flow out of that. Now, 
before I tell you uh, what's been going on uh, over the last 60 years or so and why it is that, uh, that there are so many men lacking in full masculinity. And again, I repeat, this is totally repairable, right? This is like uh, somebody, you know, who as a teenager had a lot of pimples on his face and a lot of acne. Uh, he doesn't just say, well, you know, I guess I'm an acneed person. No, he solves the problem. He try, you know, if a person breaks a leg, he goes to the doctor, the orthopedic surgeon has it set in plaster. You repair things. And, uh, and so if, uh, if there is a man who is not, for various reasons in his background, uh, fully masculinized and is, um, is, is lacking in some of that, uh, it's repairable. That's the good news. But uh, first of all, before I go into that in, in greater depth, let me urge you to visit the website rabbidaniellappin.com. And here's what you should think about doing at the website. First of all, if you haven't yet read The Holistic You, which is a free downloadable ebook you can get right away, then you should definitely do that. You should also decide about trying a uh, test membership as uh, a member of the Happy Warriors community. You can try that out free trial for a period, two weeks or so, see whether that works for you. And finally, you should also take a look at the uh, online program called Scrolling Through Scripture. Okay. Those are some of the things that you definitely want to do uh, on the website of rabbidaniellappin.com. So, what is the theory that uh, I'm looking at? Okay, well, first of all, I have to tell you that um, at different stages of a woman's monthly cycle, she undergoes very real changes. And interestingly enough, at the time of ovulation, when a woman is most fertile, most capable of conceiving a child, um, she has a, a different outlook, and it's all subconscious. Um, women at that stage apparently seek out or are, are attracted towards masculinity. Now, I don't know a whole lot about this, and I can't even guarantee that this will not end up being debunked and discredited. I don't know. But at the moment, uh, I'm aware, and I have been for many years already, because the first information on this that I'm aware of came out in 2005. And that was from the National Institutes of Health, um, the U and it's found in the U.S. National Library of Medicine. And this was a study from October 2005, uh, that made this point. They tested and found that women were drawn to masculinity during the time they were ovulating, particularly more strongly. Um, and then uh, it, again in 2010, October 2010, um, in live science, there were more reports and studies that were printed. Uh, 2014, Again, it came up in Medical News Today, and, 
and and many many other places as well the research some of it took place at the university of southern california uh, some of it in different countries but you know how it is when when a particular topic becomes in and becomes even a little trendy so a lot of different people in a lot of different places start looking at it and uh, and at the moment it does seem to be fairly reliable uh, that at the uh, the time in a woman's cycle of ovulation she is she she feels sexier and she's drawn towards masculinity if you like now all of that is pretty straightforward. That's right. Just over 60 years ago, the birth control pill came into existence. And uh, there it was. On May the 9th, 1960, the Food and Drug Administration approved the pill. And so that's like 60 years ago. Came out, it was the, the very first one, I think it was called Enovid, if I'm not mistaken, and and the way it worked was was you know fairly uh, straightforward. Uh, it used hormones like progesterone and estrogen to repress ovulation in women. That's that's exactly what it did. In, it made women not ovulate. Well, obviously, if there's no ovulation, there can be no conception. Hey, presto, birth control pill. You you got it. Now that means that. Um, in a way that was quite different before, in a way that was unknown before 1960, right? there was birth control before, but it was mechanical birth control that did not interfere with the monthly cycle of women. But the birth control pill did. And so from May 1960, and I think you'll see now why I regularly identify the early 1960s as the most uh, critical time to mark a new epoch in American history. It's not only because of the birth control pill. There were many other things uh, that took place at the same time, and I've spoken about those in the past. But uh, what's interesting now is that a certain proportion of American women stopped ovulating for a large part of the time. You know, not all women were on the pill and not all women, uh, not all women of uh, childbearing age were on the pill and not all women who were on the pill were on the pill all the time. But um, let's put it this way. If statistically speaking, you know, we could, we could easily draw up a mathematical expression that would say that until 1960, uh, an American male walking the streets of American cities, going to work and going to restaurants and going about his business, uh, was going to encounter X number of women ovulating at any particular time. After May 1960, and the numbers grew very rapidly, very quickly after that, we now know that that number X is far lower, right? Pretty obvious, because if a large number of women are on the pill, then a large number of women are not ovulating at all, and therefore men were less likely to run into women who were ovulating. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, uh, the way that natural, well, I, I want to say natural selection, but I don't really mean this in a Darwinian style, although there are aspects of it that that could apply. But what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, always in every society, uh, men are very much shaped by 
women. What do I mean by that? Well, in the same as Camille Paglia uh, says that if there were no men in the world, women would still be living in grass huts and caves. And she does say that, and and there's, <laughs> the, humorous as it is, there's a lot of truth in it because the the tough, hard, dangerous work of construction is usually work that men seek out, not women. Would women do it in the absence of men? This takes us into the realm of speculation beyond which I uh, beyond where I want to go today, but. Um, if it is true that without men in the world, women would still be living in grass huts and in caves, then I think it's also true to say that if there were no women in the world, then men would also be living in caves or on the beach or in grass huts because we, to a large extent, are motivated by women. And I do not mean this in a base way, and I don't mean this um, in a primitive way at all. I mean that the desire to be accepted by a woman and to be the one for whom she creates a home and the one to whom she gives babies, uh, that is something that ranks very highly. And so, it's not an accident that on dating programs, on, uh, on uh, dating software and dating programs out there, it's, it's not an accident that we've discovered, we know, that men lie most about their income and their height because height is to some extent a measure of masculinity and uh, income is uh, a measure of ability to, to provide. It moves the man up the socioeconomic ranking scale, if you like. And so men tend to lie about those things because they want to be viewed as valuable, right? To, to women, of course. So that is a, a very real thing, that we men do want to please women and we want to be admired by women and above all we want access to women we want to be chosen by a woman right well let's now go back to pre-1960 and before the birth control pill that suppresses ovulation in 1960 as i said uh, the average man is going to encounter X number of women who are in the process in the moment or in the, week, or the days of ovulation. And the, uh, the signals that an ovulating woman puts out is one that favors the masculine man. And so you can see what happens as a process that men subtly get the signal that, hey, you know what? If we are more masculine, we get chosen. Women smile at us and express interest in us if we're masculine. And they get the message. And guess what? The Marlborough man is born and the Marlborough man has an existence because masculinity is in demand by a certain number of women. But then 
comes post-1960 and in the decades after that. And now the chances of a man encountering an ovulating woman are much lower. And so the kind of man that's a woman who is not in a fertile part of her cycle might choose is much more a sort of easy to get on with guy. You follow? And so over the course of many years, and it has been 60 years that this has been going on, uh, since men encounter fewer fertile women, they encounter fewer women who give encouragement to masculinity. And therefore, since masculinity is energy draining, I mean, there's no question about it, um, to be a masculine man does take effort. No, you know, so much easier, no question, so much easier to sit back and say, what should we do? As opposed to saying, don't worry, I got this. And so the natural tendency of men was to slide down the scale a little bit, a little away from masculinity. Look, I'm, I'm sure you, you get that. Yeah, I don't want to over dwell on this. It's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a very, very um, strange thing, but it helps understand, you know, when you mess, when you mess with biology, there are long-term social effects. And so if, if you bring about circumstances so that large numbers of women are infertile for longer periods of time, you are going to apparently get some kind of effect in society. And <laughs> guess what? That is exactly what we got. And so I'm, I'm stressing, if I may, that this isn't necessarily the only explanation or the only reason. A lot of it has to do with many men uh, raised only by mothers. A lot of it has to do with um, men raised by fathers who themselves tended a little away from the masculine. But whatever it is, uh, we've got ourselves, you know, into a time now where if you uh, are a woman looking to uh, form a relationship and ultimately be married, it's harder now because you'd like to marry a, uh, a masculine man, which means you'd like to ma marry a man who is um, uh, ambitious and driven and, uh, and a man who can lead. You would like that. Um, in fact, as, as you know, I have said many times in the past that in general, the majority of women would like to be married to a man who is taller than they are richer than they are, and smarter than they are. That's just a reality. So, um, so here we are now with, with what we've got, and, and we're facing a, a world in which, because of the various reasons I've explored, there happen to be more men that uh, are a little further down the scale or a little away from masculinity, a little bit towards femininity than there used to be. And all you got to do is, is think about how American television programming changed at, again, this period, the beginning of the 1960s. Go back to something like uh, the Donna Reed show. Do you remember uh, Donna was married to Alex um, Stone, was, was that their name, I think? And um, this ran from 1958 to 1966. 
So it's really, it's a good example that by 1966, we're six years into the 60s, the birth control pill and everything else that's happening, and the show is no longer applicable. But what was it about? Well, I mean, you've got to just go back and look at old episodes of the Donna Reed show. And you see that Alex is a very masculine man, not just in appearance, but in how he is the the pillar of the family. He just is. And Donna, you know, you can't imagine a more feminine looking woman. Now, I know that it is popular and customary and chic and trendy to mock that you know oh well she made a point of making sure to greet her husband when he came home from work you know in heels and wearing a necklace fine you know mock as much as you like but um most men wouldn't mind being married to donna reed and um, then there was you remember leave it to beaver no you're not going to remember i don't either i wasn't even in the united states but uh, that ran from 1957 to 1963. And again, same thing. June and Ward Cleaver were the parents. And you know, June is, is totally feminine. And Ward, um, you know, Ward served in the army. He was, a, I think he was a construction engineer. And um, I forget what he does during the time of the show. But at any rate, again, he's the father and he takes responsibility and he carries the family in every way. And um, I should mention, looking both at uh, Donna Riccio and Leave it to Beaver, that one of the drawbacks, ladies, of being married to a feminine man, and again, I'm talking just about types here, a man who is less, uh, means that he's less comfortable disciplining kids, particularly boys, but even girls. He's less comfortable doing that, and that means that you end up having to do more of it. The old expression that a mother would say to her children during the day, just wait till your father comes home, uh, that really resonated because you could count on a masculine man to take care of his children's education. If they needed to be put right, he was right there. And uh, a man who lacks that quality, and remember, part of being a masculine man is you're willing to express something that needs to be expressed, even if it's going to provoke confrontation, even if it's going to cause unhappiness. One of the ways to know if uh, if you are a wimpy man is you have a tendency to avoid confrontation. You want to make people happy instead of simply saying yes or no or saying this is unacceptable. This has to change. That requires masculinity. You've got to be able to project. You've got to be able to put out. You've got to be able to insert into the situation your input. But a wimpy man is uncomfortable doing that. So uh, at any rate, so the um, Lever to Beaver ends about 1963. The Donna Reed show ends about 66. And what do they get replaced with? Now, I'm, I'm not an expert on American popular culture by any means, but I am trying to make a point. And, uh, and so uh, if I may be slightly off in something, you know, I, I apologize. But 
what shows like the Donna Reed show, which was a masculine husband and a feminine wife, or Leave it to Beaver, masculine husband and feminine wife, what that gets replaced by is uh, something like Married with Children, where dad is Al Bundy, you know, dim-witted, incompetent, um, foolish, and that ran from 1987 to 1997. So that's well into the period already. And it's it's totally different. His his wife was also uh, not very impressive. So that was uh, married with children, where the father. <laughs> but that that's not all. Do you remember um, Homer Simpson? Right, an incredibly popular show, very viable. Uh, in general, these men are all lazy, incompetent, and stupid. They are they are buffoons. This this happens onwards and onwards and onwards. Um, as late as 2012, uh, there was a Huggies commercial you might remember, which again depicted Dad as utterly incompetent and foolish. Um, you know, saying that the hardest test that could ever put a, a baby's diaper to would be for father to have to deal with. It, you know that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, a masculine guy can change a diaper. He certainly can. Anyways, I, um, I, I think it, it's reasonably clear, I hope it is, that something did change in America in the early 60s. Be, as, be that as it may, and whatever the causes are and whenever the exact date was, bottom line is that many men today are infected with wimpiness. That many men are infected with thuggishness, it goes without saying. That's obvious. You only have to look at the violent crime statistics uh, to know that. We know that, and uh, fortunately, I think most smart women understand the importance of staying away from men who veered towards that end. In other words, if a boy is not being raised diligently and meticulously and wisely, then by himself is going to default to one of two conditions, either the thug or the wimp. Neither is very good for society. Neither is very good for the women who end up in the orbits of those men. So back to you, Jennifer, uh, with your letter. Uh, your instincts are absolutely right. And uh, having noticed it, I wouldn't be at all surprised if by now you've already ended it, even without my recommendation, uh, because it was going to continue irritating you and bothering you, regardless of what your parents said. Uh, yeah, your parents want to see you with a good person, but there are good men who are masculine as well. Admittedly, harder to find. And uh, if you are in your own child-rearing years, either as a father or a mother, um, it is so important to raise a man correctly, to raise a boy to be a man, not a thug or a wimp. It's not at all easy, I can tell you that. But uh, the reward, the human reward for doing that is immense. It's beyond measure. Now, in the same way that I gladly accept life lessons from, from anybody, from anybody who has something to teach that's true and is wise, uh, whether that person is a tennis player or a racing car driver or a uh, uh, an accountant or a bus driver, it just doesn't matter because 
wisdom that is wise and true um, is is useful. And my wisdom happens to come from ancient Jewish wisdom. And so regardless of, of whether you are Jewish or not, the bottom line is that you should be able to um, hear this and decide whether this is wise, whether it's true, whether it's applicable. Now, in case you might be interested in like, where about does this come from? Where do we know it about? Um, I'll be happy to tell you. And um, again, I recommend, well, there's a Bible I recommend. It's Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible. Whether you are a Bible-believing person or not, whether you are a Jewish or Christian, it doesn't matter. I can't imagine in this day and age that anybody would have a home library, even if your library is a modest one shelf of books. I can't imagine how anybody would have a home library without a Bible. And that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. The book has been more influential than any other book in the history of the world. Um, the book has been printed more copies than any other book in the history of the world. So uh, not to have access to it at all makes no sense. And so if you haven't yet got yourself a Bible, please go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and just order yourself a copy of Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible, and uh, you'll see it right there. And th there's a reason it's recommended. One of them is that uh, it uses the exact Hebrew names for people. And so Moses isn't Moses. He is Moshe. Uh, with the correct original Hebrew pronunciation, which I think is valuable because there are certain things one can conclude and uh, and interpret from recognizing certain sounds in people's names. And again, I explain all of that in Scrolling Through Scripture, the online program I've spoken to you about. But uh, if you want to get yourself a copy of Rabbi Daniel Appen's recommended Bible, you should do so. And, uh, and then I will walk you through quickly, for those of you who are interested, uh, where this comes from in the Bible. Okay, so uh, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 20, we discover that Isaac, Yitzchak, uh, Abraham's son, the firstborn Hebrew, um, is 40 years old when he gets married. Uh, 20 years later, he has twin boys, Yaakov and Esav, and uh, he's 60 years old when that happens. That's chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 26. And then what happens <clears throat> is we're told these two boys, these twins, are very different from one another. Yaakov, Jacob, is described as a simple guy who likes hanging around the tent, and Esav is, is described as cunning and a hunter. So who is the masculine guy and who's the feminine guy here, right? Fairly easy to see. Um, it's quite clear that uh, Esau, Esav, walked away with most of the testosterone and Yaakov has most of the estrogen, <laughs> putting it in uh, contemporary terms, okay? I, I'm oversimplifying uh, to a great extent, but you get the idea. And then, not surprisingly, we discover one of the brothers is cooking a meal. Well, who do you think was cooking a meal in the kitchen? Well, that was Yaakov. That's right. He was cooking a meal in the kitchen. Where was Esav? He was out hunting. Came home hungry and wants food. Yaakov says, sell me the birthright. Esav says, sure, who cares about the birthright? If you'll give me a meal, I'll give you the birthright. 
because he sees to Asav uh, a world is a world that is filled only with material things. There are no spiritual things. You want me to give you a birthright in exchange for a meal? Yeah, absolutely. Done. It's a deal. <laughs> You're exchanging something spiritual which has no value for something material, namely a meal right now. So he does that. And then uh, many, many years go by. There's a famine and uh, Isaac and Rebecca either with or without their sons, we have no idea, goes down to the land of the Philistines. They settle in Gerar. There's a uh, controversy later on about water rights and wells. And uh, and then we discover that Asav, the cunning hunter brother, he got married at the age of 40. So Isaac is 100 years old now when Esau gets married. That's chapter 26, verse 34. This is all a, a great thing to read in Genesis, by the way. And I'm just, I'm just highlighting the things your eyes should pay attention to as you try and work your way through the section. Uh, then finally, chapter 27 starts off with Isaac finally reaching old age. By the way, Isaac dies soon after at the age of 180. We know that from Genesis chapter 35, verse 28. But at any rate, um, in the beginning of chapter 27, Isaac is old, so he's not far off that. And um, at that point, he calls his oldest son, the older twin, by a few minutes. He calls Asav and says, time for me to give you a blessing. I don't know how much longer I've got. At that point, Yaakov's mom is the one who calls him and says, Yaakov, I've got a plan. There's something I need you to do. I need you to go along and get food for your dad like this and do this and wear this, and I'll tell you exactly what to say uh, because I want you to get the blessing. So again, Yaakov, mommy's boy, in a way, uh, we, we certainly know Isaac preferred the older son Esau, and so Esau's out looking for uh, food to bring his father. Meanwhile, Rebecca, mom, gives Jacob the food to take him to father, and um, and father gives Jacob the whole blessing. And then later on, uh, Esau comes back, Esau comes back, and uh, is horrified to discover that his brother has taken the blessing, completely forgetting, by the way, that that's what he sold, right? He didn't value the birthright blessing back then, but now all of a sudden he's mad that Joseph, that Jacob took it, Yaakov took it, he's upset as all could be. So uh, Yitzchak and Rivka, the two the parents, mom and dad, um, say to Jacob, uh, your brother is going to kill you. They, and, and again, you know, his, uh, he, he verges towards the thuggish end of things, uh, does Esau. And uh, he makes quite clear what he's going to be doing to Yaakov. So the parents send Yaakov away on a journey to uh, Rebecca's brother, to uh, Rebecca's brother's house. And um, she goes, uh, so Yaakov goes on a trip. On the way there, he has a vision. This is Genesis chapter 28, verses 11 through 16. He dreams and he has a vision of greatness. And all of a sudden, we now see father isaac's blessing beginning to take effect father isaac's blessing 
was for the son whom he thought was Esau to become more powerful and more effective and to eventually be his main son, the main person carrying on his line. You remember Yaakov later gets renamed Israel. And so the children of Israel are going to be the children of Yaakov's son. He thought it was going to be Esau. Turns out that through mom's intervention, Jacob is the one who gets the blessing inadvertently. And as a result, he is the one now who acquires these powers. And look what happens. He, you watch in front of your astonished eyes, you actually watch Jacob become powerful. You see him acquiring his masculinity, if you like. And uh, he, he begins to see himself as great. And then he arrives at the well. And the other shepherds say to him, oh, uh, we can't start watering. In order to make sure that everything is fair, we have a huge heavy rock on top of the mouth of the well. And it's so big and heavy that we can only move it when everyone has gathered, all the shepherds have gathered. And, um, and so we, we're waiting. Just then, um, Jacob's beautiful cousin Rachel arrives with her father's sheep, and Jacob jumps up and puts his shoulder against this massive boulder blocking the well, and he pushes it aside. Right? Chapter, chapter 29, uh, verses 8, 9, 10. And, uh, and so we see now, this is very far from the Jacob we met at the time he was born at the beginning. Uh, chapter 25, verse 27, he was just a man, a simple guy who hung around the tent. No, this is a guy who says to the shepherds, I don't care about what you say. I'm rolling the stone off the well because I want to impress my young cousin. And that's exactly what he does. And then he does something which again, does not appear to be at all wimpy. Not only does he roll the stone off the well, but he grabs Rachel and plants a great big kiss right on her lips. And I say right on her lips because the Hebrew text is very clear that this was a deep, deep, real kiss. Um, then uh, he, um, uh, he, won he offers to work for his uncle Laban and Laban says yes what do you want and he says well I, I would like your uh, your younger daughter Rachel I want her as a wife and so he works those years and eventually uh, Genesis chapter 29 verse 21 and uh, I, I hope your English translation that you use has this correctly but if you're using my recommended Bible then it will say it correctly uh, he astonishingly uses language which is incredibly masculine and provocative. Uh, it's, uh, what does he say? He says to his father-in-law, he says, give me my wife now that I may come into her. That's pretty direct. You don't get more direct than that. Again, not the way we would have thought Jacob would have spoken. This is what we would have expected from Esau. But don't forget Jacob got the blessing intended for Esau, which ends up making him very Esau-like. And so uh, he, um, he marries 
uh, Rachel. And then, if you don't mind, because people around the neighborhood, according to ancient Jewish wisdom, people around the neighborhood always used to say, oh, Jacob, Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, and Laban has two daughters. And so you know what's going to happen? Uh, Esau is going to marry Leah, the older daughter, and Jacob, the younger son, is going to marry Rachel, the younger daughter. And so now because Jacob has acquired Esau's blessing, he not only marries Rachel, but he also marries Leah. Because of the machinations of his father-in-law, he ends up essentially becoming Esau, if you like, or essentially becoming that uh, figure, that masculine, powerful figure of drive, ambition, initiative, and vision, capable, capable of becoming the father of the people of Israel. And so that's why they're called the children of Israel, just another way of saying the children of Jacob. That is is what it is. Now, this doesn't mean to say that in today's modern world, women cannot be directors and supervisors. Uh, I'm just saying that it's more natural and easygoing for a man. Many women are uncomfortable in roles of supervisory roles because it is not a, a, a traditional or typical attribute of femininity to direct other people, to tell them what to do. And for this reason, when women do end up in uh, supervisory roles, many of them do very, very well. But it, it comes at some kind of psychic and emotional cost. Uh, women speak and write of their discomfort at having to discipline people, having to uh, fire people, having to supervise and tell people what to do. It doesn't come easily and naturally to women. That is more of a masculine attribute. And so, again, um, if, uh, if a man is feeling of these things, then he's probably a man who could use some of the injection of masculinity to boost that part of himself. Right? We are human beings. We're not animals. That means we're not just who we are. Uh, a while back, a year or two ago, I did a, a podcast show on how dangerous are the words to even think, let alone say, look, I am who I am. You never want to say that. We human beings are never I am who I am. We are always capable of immense growth and immense ability to confront new challenges and to change and to develop. These are, are huge abilities that the human being has, and we must never forget it. In exactly the same way that women have become more masculinized, today I've been focusing on the, the cultural trends that have resulted in men becoming more feminized, but uh, there's no question the opposite is also true. Women have become far more masculinized. And again, you only have to look at the depiction of women in uh, popular culture, in magazine advertisements, contrast pre-1960 to now. And, uh, and you see this now in exactly the same way that it is possible, and, and I've done programs teaching women to find fulfillment in femininity. Now, it's 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 not easy there's no question about it and part of femininity means letting your man be a man which is very difficult because sometimes people get married where in a situation where at that point in time the woman is more accomplished and is more competent 
And the natural tendency then is for her to exert that competence. And the natural tendency is for her husband to uh, to sort of back off and let her assume those roles. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so uh, very often marriages can be incredibly enhanced in every way, financially, spiritually, physically. Marriages can be enormously enhanced if both the wife and the husband work on enhancing their femininity and masculinity respectively, reverting back to being real women and real men. Fortunately, this can all be done. And, uh, but focusing today on the, uh, the masculine side of things, yeah, there are absolutely things that men who feel that for whatever reason in their past, and in, in all probability it does have to do with relationship with your father, relation, your, the relationship between your father and mother, uh, those early childhood years do really have an impact. But whatever the cause, uh, many men today do feel that they are on the, the wimpy end of the spectrum. Now, you don't want to become a thug at the other end of the spectrum, but you want to be in the middle, and you want to be a very strong masculine man, capable of goodness and tenderness and gentleness, but also capable of strength and the exertion of strength and the projection of power uh, when that is necessary. Everybody is capable of change, and it's a beautiful thing about us. I want to now give you three steps, three strategies for beginning to cure the wimpy factor and uh, to reclaim masculinity uh, as something that that is part of the fulfillment of of your life, your being. Uh, It's not comprehensive. There's a limit to what we can do in a short podcast, but at least uh, become aware of these three areas in which you could start working if you feel you are somebody who would like to uh, recover that part of your personality, that part of your being that God intended for you to have. Basically, you were created as a man. Okay, so uh, number one, number one, I recommend that you do some thinking about your day-to-day life during the course of a typical week. You might even choose to actually keep a record now for the next week, and you need to choose an area, or maybe two areas or three, but not more, where you've gone against your own wishes or what you you know to be right. You've gone against what you think ought to be done, but you've done it in order to to get along, to agree with people, um, to avoid what could be an unpleasant confrontation. Um, you know, maybe you know, maybe it's a, it's a child of yours saying, uh, "Will I be able to to get a bicycle for Christmas?" or whatever it is, and and you say maybe. You know, instead of saying we're not doing big presents for Christmas this year, uh, that would be an example. But there, there are many others. It might be in family. It might be between spouses. It might be wherever it is. Try and find um, two or three places in the recent past where you have done that. And now look out for the week ahead. Try and spot places where you are not telling the truth or you're sugarcoating the truth, 
or you're agreeing to something that you don't want to agree to, even though you know it's wrong, um, but you do it in order to avoid a fight, to avoid confrontation, to get along. That's key, right? So it's worthwhile spending a little time and catching yourself do it, right? Because that's fundamental to change. You can't possibly lose weight if you don't keep track of those midnight raids on the refrigerator. Uh, You've got to be able to look at yourself from the outside looking in. You're an observer overhead. Watch yourself and catch those occasions during the course of your day or several days or week uh, where you don't say what you know you should say or you may even lie. But the idea is, I'm, you know, I just, I'm, I, I just don't want to have a fight. I'm not ready for confrontation. You know what? Then there's going to be an argument. The person will say, "Well, why not?" You got to deal with that. Part of masculinity is dealing with that. Um, the next thing that I, the second thing I want to ask you to try, is to focus on language. And what I mean by this is, try and use to start. Uh, uh, declarations or or sentences um, with the word I instead of the word you. So in other words, please, you know, don't say to your friend or to your spouse, you make me so mad. Don't say that because you are ceding authority, right? Oh, so you have the power to make me mad? No, you don't. I'm the man. You don't have the power to make me mad. I decided to be mad, and now I'm sorry for it. I shouldn't have. And so um, phrases like, you made me do this, or, uh, well, you did this, so I did that. No. Own it. Masculinity is owning the thing. I did this, and here's why I did it. I'm sorry you don't like it. I'm sorry it made you upset, but this is why I did it, and this is why I'm insisting that we do do this. Uh, or alternatively, it's perfectly masculine to say, I did uh, do this, and uh, I'm sorry. It was a mistake. I don't want to do it again. I apologize. Um, don't try and avoid using the crutch of I feel. Okay, And now, you, you know, you've heard me explain in negotiations Uh, how valuable it is sometimes to say, I I feel, but that's different. That's when you're in control of the situation and you deliberately want to say, I feel in order to achieve a certain end in negotiation. I've discussed that at full in previous shows, but uh, in the context of recovering masculinity, uh, when you say, I feel like you kind of, uh, you're kind of using it as a crutch instead of saying this, is it? This is what I, I want. Instead of, you know, I feel like, you know, I feel like you don't really want to do this. Look, um, if it's a business situation, then it's what I need you to do. And if it's a home situation, I'd be happy if you do this. I want you to do this. But it's hard for men who have uh, fallen or, or who, who have grown up on the wimpy end of the spectrum Uh, It is very difficult, but catch your language, that you don't use crutchy language, language that you fall back on something so as to avoid being clear, to avoid saying what it is. You see, um, if you you think about three uh, circumstances, uh, social, family, and business, right? Social means it's the F of friends, family is family, and business is the F of finance, 
And in, in each of these cases, you can monitor your language. Again, what's appropriate in one isn't necessarily appropriate in another. But in the finance area, uh, you don't have to say, I feel like you don't want to do, hey, the person's getting paid. It's their job and you're their supervisor. Please do this. I need you to do this now. Um, then in the in the family area, this is you know going to be between you and your children or between you and your spouse. And uh, I should mention, clamming up, going silent is not masculine either. It's again, it, it's a natural default of the wimpy person, male personality, where what happens is that uh, your wife uh, won't do something or um, is demeans you or is acts nastily or badly or uh, you know whatever it is and your response in instead of saying i can't allow this to continue let's sit down and talk about this but this is no good and i'm not accepting it instead of saying that uh, guys have a tendency to just clam up to go silent and they you know they they're radiating cold anger and hostility uh, but they're not dealing with it masculinity means dealing with something and whether it's a flat tire or or a confrontational situation masculinity means you deal with it and uh, in 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 social relationships obviously uh, it's mostly a case there of uh, boundaries being observed uh, people sometimes tell me, guys tell me that, that you know, they don't know what to do because there's a friend that's constantly asking them for things, for this. And, you know, I, I, I want to be a good friend and I want to help, but I just, I feel that uh, I ask for very little, very seldom, and this is constantly going on. Fine. So a man establishes boundaries in exactly the same way that only a wimp lets somebody intrude onto his territory or into his home um, and so it is there there are spiritual boundaries as well and it's masculine to establish clearly what those boundaries are and to very politely but also very firmly say to your friend hey this this is this is a boundary i need to set so um all right so those are the the three areas that if if you are interested in pursuing this that you should look at uh, number one, find an area, some activity, some instance where you have not said what you should have said in order to avoid confrontation. Number two, make sure your language owns situations. I, not you make me, but I need you or I want this or I would be happier if. And, um, and then uh, thirdly, uh, the last one is find a way to spend time with men's groups. Now, uh, in in my own case, I must tell you, it's it's extremely useful because um, prayer services are segregated by gender, and so when I go to a prayer service every morning, I don't go every morning, but I should. But most mornings, and when I I go to a prayer service, I'm not even aware if there are women there because they're in a, a separate section. I can't even see. I am with a bunch of guys every morning for, you know, 35, 45 minutes. And I must tell you, it's, it's a good thing. And so whether it's forming uh, some male friendships that you don't yet have, 
either through your church or synagogue, talking to your pastor, uh, talking to your rabbi, uh, but finding finding a connection. Maybe it's through sports, by the way. That may be something that works for you. Uh, but s- making sure you spend a little time every week. Yes, I know it means time away from family, time away from finance and work, uh, but it is the effort of friendship. And uh, for men to have male friends is really very helpful. Now, if, uh, heaven forbid, you are unfortunate enough to have a wife who is extremely down on you spending any time with guys, uh, then that's a problem, needs to be looked into. Obviously, uh, I'm not talking about a, a husband who is off on some sporting event every single night of the week or four nights a week. No, I'm talking about making sure that there's at least once a week uh, where you spend time either with a group of men or with uh, some men and and you're able to to interact in a friendship role with men important to do and by the way not something we all do enough of these days again you know life is busy and complex and that's one of the areas that's unfortunately so very easy to dismiss and abandon and forfeit so we try and avoid doing that and we get things right again so my dear friends that is the situation jennifer's letter to me was really what she should do and i have devoted the rest of the show to what the guy who's dating her should do who's probably never going to hear it um so um and and even if he did would he be able to change in time enough to salvage his relationship with jennifer uh, that's it's possible particularly if he goes to her and says you know i realize what uh, what's been wrong in our relationship and um, here are the changes I'm going to make. She would be so relieved and so happy and so drawn to him and so attracted to him. Uh, please be aware, uh, masculinity is very attractive. Not thuggishness at one end, not wimpiness at the other, but strong masculinity with a touch of tenderness and a, uh, a touch of, of gentleness and uh, and softness as well but that is uh, as far as we can go as far for this show my friends good as always to be with you thank you for being with us um, please visit wehappywarriors.com if you want to be part of the we happy warriors the happy warriors community because what i've been describing in the whole show today is a male happy warrior because a male happy warrior is masculine a female happy, happy warrior is feminine. And uh, I've spoken in the past about how when I uh, prepare the show and record the show every week, um, I do so with the picture of my audience in my mind. And I see only feminine women and masculine men. But I know in reality, the world being what it is, we can all improve, right? Each and every one of us could improve. And what I've been talking about in today's show is uh, women becoming more feminine, but not really. I've been speaking mainly about men becoming more masculine. So uh, thanks for being part of the show. Thanks as always. You know, there's some of you have told me that you make a point of telling one new person about the show every week. (laughs) That's all just one new person. Well, uh, as you probably know, uh, that has caused an incredible growth. 
So, uh, so there we are. And I find that very exciting and, and very helpful while I'm preparing the show for you. So thank you for telling people about the show. And, uh, oh, I, th I think I have a, uh, do I have a letter here? I do believe I have a letter that you might find interesting. Um, uh, do, 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 do. Listen to this. Dear Rabbi Lappin, following a strong recommendation from my brother-in-law, I began listening to your show a number of years ago. I've benefited immensely from the ancient wisdom, Jewish wisdom you share, and my wife really enjoys Susan's musings. Thank you for adding value to our lives. And then he goes on to describe what he does, and uh, he speaks of something that he doesn't like that I said. And uh, Ryan, I have written to you already. You're a happy warrior, and I hope you received my email. I did respond to you, and... Uh, I explained what it was that I said and that uh, I certainly didn't mean it in the way that you heard it. So uh, enough of that. But um, at any rate, so uh, Ryan's brother-in-law gave him a strong recommendation about the show. So thank you all for giving strong recommendations about the show to anybody. I appreciate that. And it's worked really, really well. And uh, thank you for visiting wehappywarriors.com to try out becoming part of the We Happy Warriors community. And uh, thank you for visiting rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, exploring, scrolling through scripture, the online course, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin recommended Bible, and uh, anything else that you would like to look at or communicate with us through visiting that website. Thanks for it all, and I wish you a wonderfully fulfilling week, growing in your faith, your family, your finances, your friendships, and your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.